Hey guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh Fitness Podcast. So today is episode 193. So I'm super, super excited for this episode. I've been following Callum for a very long time on socials, and I know Jane has done some stuff for Callum as well. Um, So today's episode is going to be on kind of a relationship with food, relationship with yourself, and that kind of background. And Callum is a nutritionist, an elite sport nutritionist, and he's the guy that helps. His tagline is the guy who helps people uh, fix relationship with food. He has a YouTube channel as well, which is called Callum Stronach as well. And then he has a relationship with food course. But I'm going to let Callum uh, take over and explain how he got into this field. Uh, but Callum, thank you so much for coming on. No, thank you for having me. It's a, it's a- privilege to be on probably the most consistent podcast that I've, I've been a guest on thank you uh, so i'm gonna let you take over here callum and let let us know how you got into this field and your own training background and how you kind of specialize in kind of the, the relationship with food and people with themselves because it's 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 pretty rife at the minute um, with how people are, are struggling with, with themselves and food, unfortunately. Yeah, it's, um, and I think, I mean, looking at kind of things like statistics through the whole kind of pandemic, like to see things like binge eating up by 35% is just, I mean, it, I think statistics like that just kind of say it all. Um, I personally, um, I come from an, a, a kind of elite sport. I always call myself a failed rugby player. Um, and so kind of going through that kind of more professional route and then ultimately failing at about the age of 20, um, that kind of um, led me to um, kind of just, I mean, this is, I'm saying this upon hindsight, I did not as a 20 year old know what I was doing, but um, through my early teens, I was very, very overweight. That's what made me great at playing rugby. I was uh, 15 years old, 128 odd kilos, um, had great success playing a prop forward, surprisingly enough at that body weight. And then um, as I started to play in a more elite environment, training kind of three times a day, kind of having meals catered for you. You have all this kind of control on your environment. And I naturally loved the training process, um, loved the um, loved the, the gym. And the rugby kind of fell, fell out of touch with the rugby as such. But through that process, lost, as you can imagine, um, when you're, you've got such strong parameters you're eating many of your majority of your meals in a canteen with other like-minded individuals I lost a lot of weight and um to the point where I was no longer deemed heavy enough to play and then it was just the sense of um exploring my own kind of relationship with um exercise and food and and things like that and I being completely transparent really struggled off the back of that whole experience not because of the necessarily the whole rugby thing was no more but just because all of a sudden I had to kind of motivate myself to go to the gym and and it was huge parts of my kind of identity and had this eating disorder myself and so I kind of went through a process of 
I suppose, suppressing that, battling with that, dieting with that, um, dieting and then kind of um, going through this kind of restrict, binge restrict cycle, putting weight back on. Um, and spent a large part of my 20s kind of doing that. Um, whilst working in the, the fitness industry, whilst also doing nutrition um, masters and becoming accredited and registered and all of this kind of stuff. And it, it was only the sense of when I kind of felt as if that I was this kind of professional that needed to know better and I should know better. And um, for a variety of different reasons, I should be the one that kind of fixes myself in inverted commas. And it was only at that point where kind of, despite having, like I say, masters in nutrition and all of this kind of, and, and various other things, it was only at that point when I kind of reached out for help um, and kind of delve more into the kind of the the reasons why we do what we do, why we why I know what to do but can't do it. Um, yeah, it was just the sense of excuse me. Um, oh, I, f I felt really really liberated. Where it was a sense of actually, I don't have a problem with food. I have a problem with. Um, other areas i have a, a problem with an ability to basically regulate my emotions as an example uh, as, as a kind of the way i would phrase it and that was really really freeing and i went on on my own kind of um journey and then i've worked historically in in sport um worked with a, a few national governing bodies i currently work, work with um british weightlifting as as one of the lead practitioners on their nutrition and then within a couple of the kind of the elite sporting background that I've kind of come across, um, have many have been kind of like weight making and to kind of see these sports, which are kind of inherent in, in diet culture, it's kind of, it's kind of really through my own kind of experiences, opened my eyes to, to, to people who are just showing so many different red flags and so a big part of what I do today is kind of try and find that balance between working towards, I suppose, what we would deem performance-based nutrition strategies um, whilst building um, a healthy relationship with food and, and ourselves. Um, and so it's a really nice kind of, at the moment, a really nice vibrant mix between, between kind of two, I always just say two populations of people, um, whether you are like athletes that are about to or are in the process of boarding a plane to Tokyo through to just your average mum of three um you've got two populations of people who have high levels of food focus and all i deem my job is to try and take that focus and harness it into something that actually serves their their life that aligns with things like their values and, and things like that so it's fascinating seeing the polarity between the two in relation to because sometimes athletes can be put on a pedestal and that we forget that they actually have emotions and feelings I think that's something that's really hit me in relation to potentially watching like the football during kind of lockdowns. Like they're 
pushed out to three matches a week in order to keep us entertained. But they also haven't seen their family in a very, very long time. And I think it's hugely important that like they're going into over to Tokyo, which a lot of the people in Japan don't necessarily want to have the Olympics. They're going into a foreign country when they've been they've got the job and stuff, which that and stuff like that. But they're going into an environment which is unknown and they're putting themselves at risk in order to hopefully get something out of for themselves, like a medal or whatever it may be, or a place in the top 10 or whatever it may be, could be for them, but also to entertain us. So it can be, it's interesting that you've kind of come from, from that. You mentioned the thing about the feelings and that it was an, an emotional regulation thing. And can you explain, there was one thing on one post that you put up, which was very, very well written, which all your posts are, because they they kind of spell it out uh, quite easily in an easy format. But feelings are different from actions. Can you kind of expand on that a little bit more? Yeah, there's it's something to kind of, there's many ways in which it can kind of apply. Um I think one of the, the first thing it is is to just create a separation between, I suppose, what we experience as whether that's as a kind of an emotional level, a feeling based level, um, or whether and then what we experience in terms of our actions, and particularly on a chain, uh, a process of behaviour change, um, it's really really important to kind of. Um, acknowledge this is the internal experience and this is the external experience and and just evaluate just because we feel something doesn't mean that it's actually going to inherently lead to some form of action and it just is if we can create that degree of um if we can create that degree of separation, it gives us a much more positive framework to reflect on and to evaluate our change. So I can remember in my own kind of personal journey where I was like, I was experiencing um, a whole host of different positive traits, whether that was like, I mean, I was 20 in my early twenties. I was kind of single and for the, and for the, I'd lost 35, 40 kilos and was getting attention from females. And I was strong um, in, I was strong physically and pushing um, PBs in the gym and was having all of this kind of positive external, but internally I was like, why am I still struggling? Why am I still having the urges to, to binge? And why am I still having the urges to, to kind of engage in practices that I don't really want to want to um, kind of engage in. But it was only when it was a sense of actually I have felt this feeling or I've experienced this internally, but externally things are still okay. Externally, this internal experience didn't lead to a same act to a to the same action that it has historically and so it gives us a, a platform to to evaluate where do we divide our attention and it gives us a platform to notice what are what are the changes that are being made what are the changes actually we can celebrate the fact that yeah i felt sad um, but I didn't, I didn't lean into food in the way that I normally do. 
um, and things like that. And as well as that, and I don't know if you can kind of relate to this as well as someone in the service industry, um, but particularly a big part of my own work going through um, being, a, like I say, a, a, a registered nutritionist and still struggling with my own eating practices, um, I felt as if like that somehow diminished my ability to serve people that my struggles, my feelings, my internal experience um, doesn't mean that I could be as, as effective as my, as my ability to kind of contribute to um, whether that's clients or whether that's friends and whether that's family. And I think that it's really important to just kind of acknowledge whether you are in a position like like I am where I'm essentially well, like I was sorry where I'm kind of struggling with the I suppose elements of the industry that I'm working within or whether it's just that sense of um trying to I hold value in my ability to be a friend and so, somehow that feeling of doesn't diminish your ability to to do to contribute, to serve, or or however you want to frame it. So I can come onto this podcast feeling maybe isolated, lonely, sad, or anything like that. But if I can still support you, I can still like we can be sad together, and I can like I can still make your life better in the way that I would want to because I hold value in in my ability to serve. And so when we acknowledge that and to to, to kind of have that acknowledgement of I can be irritated, but I can also be loving. I can be sad, but I can also almost, I can also be supportive. I think that um, it allows us to kind of lean into and articulate better our internal experience and then align our external actions in a much more productive way. You mentioned the word urge, and I think this is one of those kind of, I don't think, like, it's, it's, in, it's, uh, it's one of those terms that I don't think an awful lot of people really, really understand, and it's, it can be one of those things for a lot of people is they may not understand that it is an urge, um, why they potentially eat, because I think sometimes the emotional regulation isn't there like we all we all emotionally eat and i think that's important to to kind of say is that we all emotionally eat because even on christmas day that's a happy time a birthday's a happy time and you still have more food but with the whole thing about the with urges and stuff like that when someone has the urge and they don't fight the urge or they don't diffuse the urge which is the big term which is diffusing the urge or riding the wave or whatever it may be the easiest thing for them to do then is to beat themselves up having so-called in inverted commas messed up when they necessarily haven't. How have you used it for yourself and for clients in order to kind of diffuse the situation, but also diffuse the situation post analysis when you could be feeling less empathetic and less sympathy towards yourself because that's the hardest part for a lot of people is like well i've fucked this up now so i might as well continue to fuck this up anyway yeah and the so there's a the the way that in which we try and unpack it 
is that like my job is to go to the root my job is to go to why we do what we're doing and so the first thing that we kind of have to evaluate is that the the and doing it no disservice the 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 modeling process that um kind of creates pathways of that leads to our decision making starts from the day that we are born and the way the way in which we consume our whole environment and then leads us all the way through to our life and so the first thing that we have to recognize is that whatever our experience is or our struggle is particularly in that moment of urge or desire um is to recognize that it's not your fault and i and i and I know we talk about kind of take ownership and all of that kind of stuff. Yes, but we have to acknowledge that it's not your fault. It's your responsibility to deal with it. But if we can recognize the truth in that, then it starts to give us a, an approach of compassion. And we can start to just say, you know what? Like this is, this is something that these are the cards that I have been dealt and now I need to look at, okay, well, what's really going on here? And what am I actually trying to do? And so what we look at in terms of the, the process of the urge is, well, well, why is it there? Where's it coming from, for an example? And just kind of two um, really superficial, I suppose, examples in terms of the, our decision-making ability. And the one might be, um, and this is a really superficial one, is that as human beings, we have an inability to comprehend the negative. And so um, if I am to say, don't think of a white horse, or the example is, don't think of Boris Johnson in a mankini, like we can't help but not do that. Yeah. We can't help but like I say, if we're told not to do something, then we're likely to, we look at research in terms of child development. If we tell, if I tell my two-year-old nephew to take this um, cup of water through into the next room and I say, don't spill the water, he is so much more likely to spill the water that's in this cup as opposed to keep the water in the cup. We say, eat at the table rather than don't eat on the sofa. And they did a study that um, they blocked um, two groups of people in, in these kind of rooms full of activities. And what in the one room they had so many kind of, um, so many different um, activities to engage in and complete freedom. They had the same freedom in the other room, but the only difference was that they were told, do not press the red button. Do not and the own and the urge to press the red button just by saying it increased by a minimum of sevenfold, um, and um, up to about twelvefold in some people. So if you're saying by saying don't do something, you're going to increase the likelihood of an urge by a minimum of seven times, then that's where we have to kind of, like I say, evaluate. We talk about the, this notion of unconditional permission to eat whatever we want. Like that is a, that's a tagline for a reason. Um, because we'll actually, although it might seem fairly scary, it might seem um, kind of, um, it's, it's, it's indicative of, 
practices that will make your life a lot easier. And so then it becomes a sense of, like I say, looking at our language around food. Is that our language, I shouldn't have this cake, I shouldn't have this cake, or I shouldn't eat now, um, is that then driving the urge? Is there certain environmental factors that drive the urge? I think the biggest one, particularly in this day and age, um, and speaking from my own environment, so I was naturally as a 130-odd kilo kid, um, and don't get me wrong, like, extremely blessed childhood in, in many ways, um, but I was put on a diet when I was about 14, 15 years old. I was then went into this sporting environment where my food intake was tracked. But what that basically means is that I have never, ever, or had at this point, I had never learned to validate my nutrition decisions for myself. And so I was put on what was the Atkins diet, a ketogenic diet, like, don't get, like, I question my my parents for it, but they were doing their best. Um, and then, so that in itself is a very black and white structure there of, like I say, ketogenic. You eat these foods, you don't eat these foods. Like it's similar. Yeah. And then um, the use of my fitness pal and tracking and, and stuff like that in an elite sporting environment, all it is is external validation. And it's a sense of if I go to that ability of how is my nutrition today? My fitness pal says my nutrition is okay. So I generate this sense of certainty and safety from an external mechanism. Whereas um, what we many people have is that inability to generate that certainty for themselves to say, how's my nutrition today? And then go internally and then validate and be like, yeah, my nutrition's fine. I'm okay. I'm in line with my goals or, and feel safe within that because, and that's where the urge can enhance because if we don't feel um, like we have a need, as, uh, like if there's the needs of the personality, there's four of them and one of them is certainty and we will always find ways to meet the need of certainty as a perception of being in control and we are really really good at it but we're also really bad at it so like for example if i had said to you um if i had if i had stood you up today like you would have been unable to um objectively accept callum has not shown up today it would have been Callum has not shown up today because, and you would have generated a story. Now there might have been some truth in the story. Callum's busy or Callum has, um, maybe you catastrophized the situation and Callum's had a car crash or maybe your own esteem isn't in the right place and Callum doesn't value me and Callum doesn't think this of me. Like we don't know any of that to be true. Um, I do obviously hold you in high regard. And <laughs> um, but the fact is that we, we generate certainty. We generate this perception of, of control through, through many different ways. It goes back to kind of more paleo caveman days where it's a safety mechanism. If there's a rustle in the, in the bushes, then we need the story that says that's just the wind. But we also need the story to say, actually, that might be a saber-toothed tiger that's going to kill our um, killers. And so it comes in a sense of, okay, well, if we're faced with this, this, un, this state of uncertainty, is that chocolate going to make me fat? Oh, can I trust myself where we're posing these questions to ourselves? The easiest way to generate certainty in that moment is to just go, 
fuck it. There's no, there's no rules on food. Like, how can I, how can I, cause it's a feeling of unsafety. So how can I be unsafe when there's no rules on food? When I cut, where, or at least when I expand my boundaries or my, my perceived boundaries on food to a place where I can just, um, where it, it fits this decision-making. And so often, so it's often looking at this place of why are we doing what we're doing? Can we generate, it's, it can often come down to just a generation of certainty and safety that comes from internally. And that's what we're looking to, to kind of delve into. And um, the place to start, coming back to your original question, is, is just purely of, of, of compassion and recognizing, like, and I'm, like I say, I don't mean this in a mean ways to, to blow hot air up someone's arse, but just to be, it's not your fault and approach it from that means and start being like, okay, what am I, what can I do about this? Um, and, and going from there, that's a really long winded answer. But. Oh, but I think, I think it, it's in depth, but I think it needed to be said because I think the main thing that I work an awful lot on with clients is the element of self-compassion and self-appreciation and understanding why we do certain things and why we don't do certain things. And then if we don't, if we decide not to do certain things or if we decide to do certain things about accepting that decision. And I think that's a huge element. But you've also mentioned the word trust, trusting yourself around a certain food. And there's probably two foods that will come to my mind straight away, which is carbohydrates. And the other one is chocolate. And they seem to be the two that seem to have a, a, Thing for people in their minds that they can't or cannot have this that could be from environmental factors like you've spoken about with family and friends or whatever maybe it could be from certain slimming clubs which are shit um and that their sins building up that relationship and stuff as well how do you build up trust with the food for yourself or how do you build that up with a a client because it's not easy to do um again it's through providing the brain with evidence that they are safe and you can do that through it basically it's like a relationship a relationship with food is like a relationship with a person um in the sense of if i am if i'm like about to date someone then i i kind of i'm a bit tentative around them like what can I don't know this person and and I don't know how I can fit this person into my life then I understand that okay there's an initial connection and then I can use this person for fun in my life and um and and then it's just the sense of developing that part and as you progress the the relationship and you become you spend more time that degree of familiarity with that person then allows you to use that um person not that you'd use a partner in in that sense but to use that person for fun for comfort for maybe intellectual stimulation for means of of creativity even etc etc it's the same with food um and so there has to be some form of exposure and there's no right or wrong here with some people um i've got an amazing client at the moment like we have a she is she has an absolute obligation to eat chocolate every single day it's like what if i don't want chocolate 
don't care. You eat chocolate. And what we've done in the beginning is that we've um, we've had forty. We we weigh forty grams of chocolate. Like it's a very controlled portion that f- that gives her that certainty. Yeah. We know that fits into that um, fits into that her kind of nutritional needs. Then we expand that and say, okay, chocolate. Now buy the bars, the multi pack bars that are kind of a, maybe a bit more of a portion or. A kind of, uh, but then are portioned out into their wrappers, and then once we get familiar with that, then we expand it again, and we look at um, buying the two hundred gram bar. So she actually has to open the packet and then snap it off and and, and stuff like that. Um, and then once we have done that every day and can build that to a place of of control, then we look at okay, well. We, we remove the, the, the objective of eating it every single day and start to create a connection with why do we want chocolate? What's our intention? Like, what are we looking to do here and create, our, create a greater connection with our decision-making around these kind of things? But the main thing, it comes through exposure. It comes through, like any relationship, like I'm not going to go and meet my future wife by just sitting here and avoiding all women. Like I've got to go out and initially expose myself to women. And then I then expose myself to this one person even more and more and more and more and more to build a a relationship that I can lean into someone for fun, for connection, for um, a whole bunch of, of different reasons, you know? And it's the same with food is that if there is something I would challenge people to be, and I challenge my clients to be specific. Like I don't want, I fear carbohydrates. That's a big, big label to put on. It's huge. And so tell me like, um, and I know it sounds really, really strange, but like my a client of mine could ex- it display that degree of control on crunchy peanut butter, but smooth peanut butter she had no regulation on. Like um, an almond butter she had no regulation on. It's basically the, it's the same foods in many ways. And so it just becomes a sense of like you need to be specific. Because otherwise, we give ourselves these labels of I am inconsistent, I am this, I am that. And it's just that it's, they're not true. They're not true. And so, like I say, exposure and specificity are the ways that we over, overcome that. Do you, I, we're, we've gone completely off script. One of the questions I've sent over, we're down a rabbit hole now, we're too deep now. It's okay. <laughs> In relation to kind of giving yourself the permission and stuff, you've spoken about kind of like that's and being specific. That's the hardest part because people have pushed down that emotion to like their toes and they don't want to bring it to the surface level for a very long time. When someone is struggling to get to that, that surface level stuff and say they fear carbohydrates, like that's a very broad statement as you've suggested, or they fear peanut butter but yet they can have a certain peanut butter. How do you bring that surface level or that feeling to the surface level? Or how do you bring that fear to the surface level without them feeling like they're being judged or attacked? Because that's a big thing. That is, yeah. That's a really, really good question. Um, There's so many different ways. So many different ways. In the sense of, it depends where the person is. Yeah. Because 
again, the reasons why we do what we do are uh, completely, completely on a on a continuum of kind of being in a place of they are like working with clients who have huge levels of trauma through their life through to and trauma is subjective by the way trauma like yes we're talking about trauma in the form of abuse and and, and all of this kind of stuff but trauma can just be um can just be the most passive passive of words said to you and taken um taken in the wrong way when you were 12 years old you know and it's it's it can be the same thing so in terms of um in terms of kind of dealing with it, like ideally we'd love to go to the parts of our identity and beliefs about ourselves. That's where I would like to go, but not everyone is ready to kind of go that deep. So the first thing is to, like I say, is to kind of make two columns and, and look at the, the, the situations that actually you handle yourself in. So generally, there's, an, there's a theme of inconsistency. There's a belief that I am inconsistent in, in terms of our, my food behaviours. So I want to know, um, I want to know the column in which you are really consistent and you are really inconsistent. And so, and I want to look at the environments around that. So I had a belief that I was a really inconsistent person as an example. Um, but actually I displayed huge levels of consistency in so many areas, but then there was these areas that I was really inconsistent on. And that's a fact, um, that, um, was kind of leading me to believe that I am an inconsistent person. Like, no, there's all of this evidence that I'm ignoring that suggests that I can be consistent. And so it's then being specific with both columns of consistency, inconsistency. I can, I am, and one of them for me is like, I really struggle to manage my eating behaviors when I was at a barbecue. Now I probably have two barbecues a year, but like, note it. It's important. I struggle when I um, at Christmas, I've worn Christmas a year and, and looking through these kind of things and being as specific. And then you can start to address the kind of, you can celebrate the things that are kind of going really well, but then you can also address the inconsist um, the specifics of why you struggle with those particular events. Then you can be like, okay, cool. Well, why, what is it about, Christmas that I find really, really problematic? Is it the idea that I'm going in with a dieting narrative? Is it the idea that I'm just, I'm not tuning in with satiety signals and all of these kind of things. But like I say, it's important to celebrate and rid of these beliefs um, because there's evidence on both parts and there'll always be evidence on on both parts to to kind of say that you are kind of consistent and inconsistent. One of the situations that's kind of coming up an awful lot more now that the kind of the world is thankfully opening back up is when people are going over to other people's houses for dinner and they're unsure of how to handle the situation. They don't want to insult someone if they don't have a certain meal, particularly when it's relatives or it's your mom or your auntie or your granny or whatever. And they've cooked up this amazing kind of like Christmas dinner like meal or whatever it may be. And you're you're you don't know how to handle a situation or how to handle the 
the feelings that I had to handle what to say to those people without being rude. How would you bring, what would you bring in to that in order to handle those kind of situations? Because it's kind of coming up more and more now in the last little while. I know the stuff that I've done with my clients would be interesting to hear from your taste, your, your, t- your stand on it. I would ask, why are you doing it? Would be the first thing. Like, so if there is a trigger, so trigger is just a, a, a negative emotional yeah. um, experience. Um, if there is like an, an, um, an idea of anxiety, where's that coming from? Like what's, why are you feeling that? Is it a sense of like, um, a relinquishment of control, having having someone else to make your own decision making, and we what we want to do, like my whole goal, like we talk about taglines. My whole goal is to build a free and free and autonomous relationship with food and themselves. And so, if you're um, struggling to relinquish control of the decision making of what's going in our body, them to other people, then that's doesn't sound like you're completely free there. Um, now, th- so therefore, I would I would challenge it. Now, obviously, it's a sense of then um, we we do communication practices. We look at we explore our values. So when we're close um, in um, we're placed in situations like that, we kind of know how what how we want to align our food decisions with. Um, and it just becomes um, a sense of then looking at how do we communicate that because what we want to also do is um, communicate our boundaries around food um, particularly in a disordered and an eating disorder space that becomes really really important particularly depending on where they are at a a behaviour change what level they're at in terms of a behaviour change model Um, and so what we look at is pathways of communication. And so, because what we can often do is that we can, um, burden ourselves with more responsibility unnecessarily, um, or emotional burden, um, as because it's safer. And so what we look to do is then, articulate these ideas of um of what we actually want and why we want it because if i'm not communicating these things at risk of offending these people um whoever that is family or whatever then that is that's not something again that's not freedom that's not what we want to do i and what we have to learn to do is the sense of like if i was to communicate with you if i was angry with you now i want to um, like anger is a, or frustration is a perfect emotion to do this with is a sense of it's my job to be able to communicate anger because it's perfectly legitimate or a negative emotion that's perfectly legitimate but it, I have to be able to do that through and in a way that makes you feel safe now with anger we associate it with violence generally or historically we've associated violence so hopefully if I was to be angry a person or you in this context would feel safe physically but also emotionally to be like Shane I'm really pissed off with you right now but you feel so safe in the fact that I can communicate that 
um, in a way that you know that my opinion, my value of you does not change. My, um, you are still completely, completely safe. Because uh, often we can, we can, we know what we want. We know what's best for us. We tune into that. Like we're our, 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 our intuition is, is perfect most of the time. Um, and so we should trust in that. And then it often becomes a means of communicating that and learn. And if we can feel safe in communicating that, then that's what we need to practice. Um, because sometimes, because we cannot control the other person's response, then we don't articulate it. And so a big part of what I will promote my clients to do is to practice communicating like emotion, um, feelings, thoughts in a way, and we get it wrong, but in a way that can make another individual feel safe. And then you have that ability to articulate your boundaries on food. Like particularly if we've got someone with an eating disorder and they're placed in a, at a, a family buffet, as an example, they have to communicate their boundaries. Otherwise, the whole experience is, is, is really compromised. And so it's going to that level. And that's what I would encourage you to do is to be like, OK, I cannot control the response of this person, this person, this person. But I think it's a really good, but you have to see it from their point of view. See that by you rejecting their food, food is a love language to some people. Food, you, by you rejecting their food, you yeah. might trigger them in some way. And it's like a, um, the example it is, is like a, um, a relationship breakup. It's the sense of, um, it's, if, if you were, you know you're going to upset someone, so, but it doesn't mean that you stay in the relationship. It's just that you trust yourself to compassionately support them through whatever they experience. And just to be like, it's not a reflection of you. Or maybe it is a reflection of them in a breakup context, but particularly in this food context, it's not a reflection of you. Like, I still don't judge you for your food choices. It's just that this is where I am at and learning to communicate these things. And I think that it's, it comes down to why we're, why we're doing it ultimately. I think that's an important statement that you kind of mentioned that it's a, it's 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 coming from it can be coming from a place of love from the other person that could be their position in the family like say if it's a mom or a dad and they're the chef and their whole thing is that's their cooking is their 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 thing and they want to be able to provide that to the family we don't want to offend that person but we also can't control what that, how that other person feels we can control what our actions are and our verbalization of the actual situation but we cannot necessarily understand we can cannot necessarily control what they're going to say back and if that person is struggling with their own situation they could be projecting their insecurity of food they could be pushing their insecurity of themselves on top of you and that's not fair on you you mentioned there about kind of talking about how you're feeling about food or your situation. There is an awful lot of room to be done on the whole education side of food for a lot of people because what can happen, and I know I've had this before, but I'm sure you've had this before from working in the fitness industry is, oh, are you sure you can have that? Or I can you have that at all? Or you need to eat a little bit more because you're looking a little bit gaunt or you're looking like a scarecrow or some comments like that. And I'm only going from what has been said to me, especially on like, if you go out for meals with people or whatever, it's kind of like, 
yeah, I'm having my ice cream. My ice cream is on my me time. Just leave me be. Um, but it's them pushing their insecurity on top of you. Yeah. It's, I don't have, I don't have, well, I have ice cream every day, but yeah. it's not that I have a whole tub of Hagenas every single day. There's nothing wrong with having a whole tub of Hagenas if, if, if it fulfills you and you feel emotionally good afterwards or you feel okay and you're forgiving to yourself afterwards in that, in that case. The, the whole thing, one of the, the posts that really, really has, I think, has hit home and I, and I sent to a few clients was in relation to exercise and the statement of my exercise is my therapy. And I think, I think most PTs have probably fallen into this bracket in that we feel that we have to exercise to look a certain way in order to be accepted, to be all that kind of stuff. But you talk about it that it's, no, it's your avoided strategy rather than your actual proper strategy to do actually what you want to do. Can you kind of expand on why, why exercise isn't really a therapy? I think that we also have to, let's just caveat to say that, like, I exercise. <laughs> I exercise a lot, and I think that it's great. Um, but then, and it's a way of, like, expressing energy which is great yeah Yeah. um an emotion is energy in in many ways yeah the thing is is that we it also can exercise can well i'm not um i'm also in tune with the fact that it's fantastic for mental health but it's fantastic for mental health because it builds up um attributes like confidence and um, resilience and and kind of builds those attributes. But what it doesn't do is that we don't deal with the root. And so I can, I can feel a certain way right now. Maybe I've been triggered by you on this podcast and, and I kind of finished this, this, um, this chat and I feel really, really anxious okay, well, I'm just going to go and let off some steam and I'm going to go and exercise, which I am going to go and exercise after this. But um, it doesn't look at, well, well what, what was it that, about this conversation that really triggered me? What was the um, kind of the issue that I actually the struggled with? Because when we have um, these kind of feelings, there's so much kind of data that can come from that. Um, and again, what it can do is that we can, because our, our actions in many ways or our patterns serve us at a certain moment in, in time. So like my, my routines and my eating behaviors and my, um, my, my exercise routine for one, like particularly exercise in this context, it, it serves me as someone who is self-employed, um, has um, fantastic autonomy over his diary, um, is single, is in his early 30s, um, and I live in North Wales at the moment. But what happens if that changes? What happens if in 10 years' time I have a child and like, I don't have the same autonomy that maybe I do now? the the trigger behind the anxiety is still there the belief and so what we want to do is not avoid these things like i say these emotions give us a capacity to reflect on ourselves and be like okay what's going on there i hear that 
I, and what's the story that's driving there? Am I reflecting my own insecurities um, f- um, on, from Shane or after this conversation? And go find truth in that. Whereas so many people just choose to escape their feelings through exercise. And it's something that, excuse me, it's something that is just, it doesn't give us that kind of freedom and awareness. And at some point, things, your relationship and your habits with food, your relationship and your habits with exercise, it will change. Like whether you get injured, whether you have a kid, whether you move locations, like nothing is fixed. And so what we want to do is create these versatility in our practices and our behaviors. And that versatility only comes from awareness. And so that's where we, we kind of, that's why many people use their exercise as an avoidance strategy. And I think like, and I think what needs to be said again is like exercise is amazing for mental health and yeah. neither of us are downplaying that. And I think it's, it's important that it's, it's amazing as a, as a release, but it's not a permanent release. It's like that temporary release of serotonin or whatever it may be, or dopamine hit or whatever it may be for getting up and doing a session, but that's still temporary. That's going to kind of, dissipate over the day and it's not about doing endless and endless amounts of cardio or endless and endless, like three or four classes a day in order to kind of keep getting that hit it's about actually dealing with the stuff that's going on i think what that's i think a lot of people have found that tough over this weird time with that they're seeing loads of online classes they're seeing loads of zoom classes they're seeing loads of things and thinking that exercise is going to solve their problem but it's almost it kind of can come back to like well I'll be happy when I look a certain way. I'll be happy when I'm a certain weight. And unless you can tell the future and unless you can tell me the lot of numbers for tonight, I don't think you can be certain of that thing. And from a lot of dealing with a lot of people is that a lot of people are looking for certainty and not, and are afraid of looking for that kind of like irregularity to come in. And that's potentially what crops up for an awful lot of people is they don't understand how to deal with those irregularities. They don't need to, they don't understand how to deal with those emotions. And it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of like uh, soul digging uh, into kind of understanding it. I think the day you understand yourself, like I don't even think you ever understand yourself. I think you just become a little bit more at peace with where you're at. Yeah. Uh, I had this chat with Dallas, one of the coaches, uh, during the week and it's kind of like at different stages there'll be different values and be different priorities and different criteria for you to match up to for yourself to match up to not to match up to what other people are thinking but it's important for you to kind of say to yourself that like exercise is not to be abused it's to be enjoyed it's to be a challenge it's to be it can be it kind of reward yourself for getting a certain lift getting a certain pb and the running or whatever it may be but it's 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 important for you to understand that. Um, I'm conscious of your time, Callum. So I'm gonna gotta go back to the last question, which is in relation to the slip up doesn't mean you're back at square one, because I think this whole come by it's kind of going in a roundabout circle from where we're at the very beginning is kind of like some people will struggle from like oh I've had one inverted comma bad meal. So now the rest of the week is gone. And I always use the analogy of like, well, if you had one flat tire, would you puncture the rest? And people understand that. People think it's funny and stuff like that. But at the same time, they struggle to apply it to themselves. Think, well, I've gone one meal off, so now I'm kind of moving away from it. So I'm just going to let the whole week slip. And then the whole remorseful thing, the guilt thing kind of comes comes in. 
Can you talk about that a little bit more about kind of like the a slip up doesn't mean you're back at square one? Yeah, I it's I suppose one of the ways in which I kind of really um, align with um, when I is um, people like Eckhart Tolle's work, like in terms of the yeah. power of now. And the way I kind of frame it is that we're born with a toolbox. And as we are, um, as we progress through life, we add tools into this, into this toolbox. We, um, and they are, they come from many different um, spectrums of, of kind of, um, emotional, emotion tools, like practical tools all go in there. So for example, I would say that, um, I would say that when I initially begun my kind of weight loss um, journey, when I began my weight loss journey back in when I was 14 years old, a huge, the tool that I lent into when I was 14 to begin my weight loss was shame. I shamed myself into losing weight um, because it was a sense of like, you are ugly you are probably very like very very critical of of myself when I was that young and it served me so so well but like at that point like that's the only tool that I had in my toolbox I didn't really as children yet we can um whether that's teenagers or as young adults um or young um young children sorry we have the capacity to feel but we don't know how to control them and to to nurture them into something productive and so shame was one that I really like I say hung on to pain creates urgency and so it was it was a really effective tool like I'm not going to lie but then like these kind of emotions are like taking a screwdriver into a nail whereas like as I grow old older I develop other toolbox uh, other tools the tools like compassion and love, and these are the freaking power tools that are so, so, um, so, so important to, to kind of nurture and to hold on to. Um, and the, the point is that with this t- metaphorical toolbox, we add to it every second of the day. Like, like right now, I am unconsciously um or maybe because i'm drawing a greater awareness of it i'm i'm consciously reflecting on terms of okay well how do i feel about what i'm saying is is this true am i talking too much and i will not unconsciously kind of adjust myself based on this experience this one experience the one the the callum that showed up on this call does not exist anymore he has had this experience the past hour and a whatever that has um, that has created this one, and there was an amazing, amazing podcast which was where they interviewed Johnny Wilkinson, and he Is that the high performance podcast. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And he put it perfectly when he said, and I can relate to this being a former rugby player, where you watch the performance analysis um, after a game and 
the anxiety sets in when you get to like minute 57 and it's like, I know that in three minutes time, I throw this pass and it gets intercepted and they scored. And you have that same emotional experience of anxiety and it's negative. Whereas why can't you be the sense of like, just watch yourself from a, from a past, um, from a past sense and just be like, that person was doing their best. Like when I look at like the, the things that 14 year old me says about myself trying to lose weight, it's probably quite disgusting. Like the way in which I would be critical of myself and really loathing of myself. But I can look back and just be like, he was doing his best with the tools that he had. But me now, this is what I would do. This is how I would approach it. These are the tools that I have. And it's the same sense with what Johnny Wilkinson was referring to. Like four days ago, I threw this intercept pass and they scored. Whereas rather than thinking, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, like that's happened. Me now in this situation, knowing what I know, I know that I would maybe do this differently. I might do this differently. And we're always, always learning. And it got to the point in my own personal experience where I know this sounds a bit kind of um, unrealistic, but there was an element of me that got really excited about binging. Like when I did binge, I would almost, like I said, I'm not saying I was dancing off the ceiling, but I almost had something to journal about. I was like, amazing. Like, this is an opportunity to get to know myself better, to be like, okay, well, what was the situations around it? What was this about it? And there's so, uh, so much that comes out of an experience and every single experience. And what we just, if we can just draw a greater level of, of consciousness to, to kind of why and what we're doing, then it makes a, a, a huge, huge, um, uh, a huge, huge, it improves our trajectory. And so it just comes from a sense of you're never at square, um, back at square one because every single experience, whether it's food related or not, is constantly adding to your toolbox, changing the tools, refining the tools um, for better and for worse. Um, and what we, what we want to just draw upon is just be like, a, uh, like what is, am I using the tools in the most effective way? Do I need to go out and get more tools? Do I need to go and um, like learn how to like, I've all of a sudden I've got these power tools of compassion and love, but I'm str like, it's a massive chainsaw. Like I can work a chainsaw. I'm going to go and have to get someone to teach me how to use this chainsaw, you know? Um, and so, all we ever are, like we said in these kind of literature, all we ever are is in this moment. And this is something, that past version of you, that version of you where you deem yourself to be at square one, you are so far from that point. And I think that it's just, it's so important to just kind of reflect on that and it gives a platform for compassion. Just to be like, okay, these are the tools that I used, okay, and then can kind of just reflect on it from, from that kind of point. I love that uh, sentiment of you're a different person to a few moments ago. You can't go back and relive that. So why try to be that person again? And I remember watching that episode of the High Performance Podcast with Johnny Wilkinson and 
I don't think I've ever come out of it more confused out of a podcast in relation to how deep he was talking like about trees and how the the roots of the trees and they're still growing they're still looking for food they're still looking for water um but it was interesting how he had suffered from that side of things himself and he couldn't even enjoy winning the world cup he couldn't even enjoy winning high-end cups he like he, he only felt at ease himself when he was living in the moment in Toulon because he was potentially away from certain media, certain things. Um, he doesn't even, he didn't enjoy rugby at one point. Um, but I think it, it's important that what you've said there, that you're a different person to where you were like 60 seconds ago, 30 seconds ago, one second ago, you still are, you can still kind of move in a direction you want to go. And I think that's a beautiful sentiment to kind of, to finish up on. Callum, I think there's so much in that episode that I, I know will resonate with. I can see some people that I've spoken to, I can see clients just kind of like, I think a bit of light bulbs are going to go off. Um, there's a lot there. Uh, so Callum, where can people find out about your food course? Where can people find out about yourself? And where can people hopefully find out about your future podcast? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Under um, the bus. Yeah, yeah, we'll do it. Um, so I'm uh, at Callum Strona with one L on Instagram um, and my website, callumstronacoaching.com. And um, yeah, float around on all the all the social media platforms is probably the best way to, to get a hold of me. No, seriously, guys, I would I would definitely give um, Callum a follow. It's like the content, the, the time and effort he puts into his posts and the content and stuff and the courses and stuff is, is incredible. Uh, Callum, I cannot thank you enough for giving us so much of your time this morning. Thank you so much for coming on. No, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.